Well, as we look at uh, these verses this evening, I, I've given the, the sermon the title, False Teachers Create Controversy. Covetousness creates false gain. False teachers create controversy. Covetousness creates false gain. We, see, we, we, we recognize here that Paul has been writing to Timothy, guarding him against false teaching and, and urging him to address the false teaching in this church in Ephesus. This priori priority and urgency was to deal with false teaching. Uh, and this has been the thread throughout uh, the letter. And we arrive at two issues within the church that Paul wants to uh, be clear about and leave Timothy with no doubt about. And the two issues we come to this evening, I believe, are disturbing. I know they leave me uneasy and even a little downhearted. I know I shouldn't feel like this, but I do because of how I have seen these issues affect church, the Christian church, and individuals particularly in the Presbyterian church in Ireland. And so firstly, there is this issue of controversy. And as I said, my first point is false teachers create controversy. In Ephesus, we see heterodoxy, heterodoxy, distorted teaching or attitudes, conflicts around doctrine and practice, causing controversy and quarrel, quarrels and friction. And regrettably, in my experience, I've come across this regularly in the church. And it always disturbs me when I see this happen. Sometimes it is in the, the wider church when debates about theology and the application of doctrine create tension and even dissension. In my over 40 years as a minister in the Presbyterian Church in Ireland, there have been quite a number of times my heart has been heavy and torn between conflicting positions within the church. As we have been considering 1 Timothy, some of the issues that have created controversy in Ephesus still cause debate and quarrels today on worship, on praise, leadership, on ordination, on gender and the roles of men and women. In our congregations, we allow prejudices, suspicion, even malicious talk, which is referred to in verse 4 for reading, to cause controversy and dissension. I recall times having to deal with letters people have written expressing their disagreement about how things are done. Now, thankfully, that wasn't too often on my personal, uh, own personal ministry. In a position uh, I had in the Presbyterian Church in Ireland over the past few years, I have had letters of various kinds making complaints against ministers, 
Kirk Sessions, Presbyteries, the General Assembly, and they cause me despondency. Of course, people's issues have to be treated with respect and be dealt with graciously. But when many of the issues that cause dispute can be avoided, that's what saddens me. And if we were acting, as Paul says, in agreement with sound, doc, uh, sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, when a lot of that can be avoided, when they could be avoided by exercising grace. And it saddens me to, to see the, the conflicts and quarrels there are. Those in leadership, regular worshipping people, people who want to be good followers of Jesus, and those who sit on the outside can all be wanting when it comes to being faithful interpreters of the good news of Jesus. And this is why Paul here is addressing the false teaching of the teachers in Ephesus. Paul, in the, in the previous verses, was emphasizing how the household of believers, the family of the church, should treat widows with compassion and honor, to treat church elders with respect, and in chapter 6, verses 1 to 2, how slaves should serve their masters, and masters treat their slaves with due civility. We've had sermons on these issues. These were the things Timothy was to press home. And at the end of verse 2, he is urged again to tackle further false teaching of the, or false teachers. These teachers in the church of Ephesus were offensive to Paul. They were undermining all he had been teaching in the churches. These teachers were promoting their interpretations, which were different and teaching otherwise, other than the apostolic teaching of Paul. And Paul believed there was sound instruction from Christ and that Paul, the apostle, delivered it. It was Paul's conviction that he spoke in the name of Christ. And his teaching was from Christ. This is alluded to, if you turn briefly even to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and 6. He was affirming this. He insisted also that orthodox teaching was godly teaching. Or literally, the teaching which accords with godliness. Such teaching is also alluded to in Titus chapter 1 and verse 1 and stated as the truth that leads to godliness. Now, godliness seems to me to mean good, faithful commitment to Christ's way, signed Christian discipleship. And so the signed instruction we read in verse 3 comes from Christ and it promotes godliness. Paul was uncompromising 
To disagree with Paul was to oppose the truth of Jesus. He was forthright about the consequences experienced by a church which was infiltrated with false teachers. It was an unhealthy church. There were regular controversies, quarrels about words, constant friction between people. It was sickening to see how disputes were so prevalent. And you turn to his second Timothy in chapter 2, he refers to it as like gangrene in the church. Gang. As I said earlier, it is disconcerting to recognize a church that is troubled by dissension and controversy. Every age has been troubled by theological controversy and disputed praxis. We are sitting in the church here this evening due to the theological debate of the Reformation 500 years ago. Regrettably, we see throughout the church today theological issues that are dividing churches, creating friction and discord. I referred at the beginning of the service to First Tim or Second Timothy chapter three and verse sixteen and following, where Paul wrote, "All Scripture is God breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness." Training in righteousness, godliness. And verse seventeen, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Godliness. The fundamental issue is often how the word of God is interpreted. Is it the inerrant, God-breathed, inspired word, or has the hermeneutic changed? That being how the Bible is treated and understood the issue is often that instruction contained in the Scripture can be interpreted and influenced by contemporary culture or changing theological perspectives. The big cultural issues of today are causing conflict between the orthodox who holds the conservative interpretations and those whose interpretation is influenced by current culture. It was the interpretation and cultural interests and unhealthy applications that was causing the controversies and frictions in Ephesus. And verse 5 alludes to a fundamental issue that has obsessed the church for centuries. Power and financial gain. And Paul has alluded to those who were causing the controversies and quarrels in Ephesus uh, as teachers who were preaching some kind of prosperity gospel as we know it today. Verse 5, we read the teachers were who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Now, the prosperity gospel holds sway today in many areas of the, the Christian world. There are celebrity 
preachers who preach on the basis of the Old Testament promises that God desires to make Christians wealthy, especially if church members are generous with their giving, and particularly to the preacher's church. Now, it seems to me that such leadership has imposed their authority and have been guilty, and has been guilty of idolatry, power, profit. Such incidents of this find its way to the public press often. We read of mega churches in America crashing because of leaders who have fallen to the seduction of power and the appeal of wealth. And we have reports in our local media of similar occurrences in independent churches led by popular individuals. Now, it, it seems to me that all these factors, that of false teaching and controversy, of power and idolatry, must be issues that we constantly pray about. It is possibly something we don't pray frequently, that our churches are faithful to the teaching and orthodox doctrines of the Scriptures, of what we confess and believe, that our teachers, our ministers, our teachers in our theological colleges be committed to sound teaching. That the doctrine and praxis that can divide and create local church discord, national church division, universal church conflict be dealt with and debated in a, in a sensitive manner, and that all parties be driven by grace and humility and godliness. And most importantly, that we are people who uphold the sound and godly teaching of the Scriptures. The late John Stott, who is probably one of the foremost uh, evangelical theologians of the past century, concluded this section of his commentary on these verses by stating, Indeed, in the end, there are only two possible responses to the Word of God. One is to humble ourselves and tremble at it. The other is to harden our hearts, stiffen our necks, and reject it. Verse 5, in reference to godliness as a means of financial gain, leads on to the topic of verses 6 to 10, which I've entitled, as I said earlier, Covetousness Creates False Gain. We read of another issue here that causes me sadness when it is seen in the church. Particularly to begin with, what we read in verse 10. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. 
I can think of examples of this. And one particular of someone who was a friend and a contemporary, who was a brilliant student and competent theologian, a splendid preacher, and should have had significant ministry in our church. He was also very proficient in his initial profession, and while studying, continued to work and do locums. The income was quite attractive. And when he was called to a church, he continued to do the same. The money was good. On Saturday, he was doing a locum. On Sunday, he preached. And sadly, eventually, after much grief for him and his congregation, he resigned from his call to ministry in the Presbyterian Church in Ireland. The God of money was too much. He bowed to the idol of money. Remember Matthew 6, verse 24? No one can serve two masters. Either you hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, most people uh, had some interest in the Chancellor's mini-budget this past week because we all are affected by it. How much we have and how much we can spend is the way of life. We can't divorce ourselves from money. The issue is how we use it, how much of it we want, how much we think we need, how much we want to make, how much we want to see it grow, how much we want to store away, how much we want to demonstrate to other people we have, how excessive is the lifestyle we want to have. You may know the the sermon illustration I'm about to share with you. I heard it a few years ago, and I I use it uh, occasionally. It's about a game you and your family might play at Christmas. Our family, when we're all together at times, we will play this game of Monopoly. I assume most of you know the purpose and the rules of Monopoly. My family can be quite competitive. They take it after their mother. Oh, no, maybe, maybe it's dad. The purpose is to acquire as much property and utilities as you can. Make as much money as you can. Mortgage property, houses and hotels, and end up bankrupting your siblings and win by ending up being a millionaire. But when all the competition, when all the possible arguing, or maybe the disappointment, and I hope uh, laughter is also over, when it is all over, what happens? It all goes back in the box. It all goes back in the box. Isn't that the truth of life? We might be concerned about what we have, but at the end, it all goes back in the box. Verse 7, for we thought Sorry, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take 
nothing out of it. And Job said in, first, in Job chapter 1 and verse 21, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. In the relation to earthly possessions, our entry and our exit are identical. A very wealthy lady died, and the minister who was conducting the funeral was asked by an inquisitive uh, mourner what she had left in her will. The minister replied, I'm sure you can anticipate the reply. The minister replied, she left everything. You see, Paul warns us against covetousness, harmful desires that plunge people into ruin. And this applies to the poor who want to be rich and to the rich who want to be more rich. I wonder, is Paul reflecting on the wisdom of Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 10? Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. And in verse 6, but godliness, First uh, Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Paul is contrasting contentment with covetousness. And we have to admit that we are generally all rich. We can pray, give us this day, our daily bread. And generally, for most of us, we will have the ability to have bread each day. Do we really need to be coveting for more stuff? We are, resp we are responsible for how we exercise our stewardship, our stewardship of what we have, and to wisely consider how we invest and manage our resources. And Paul writes in verse 8, if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. For we constantly are experiencing the profit, I believe, of great gain. Our Christian contentment, though, does not depend on material things, the material things we gain. Remember, Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 12, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And he continues in verse 13, and I can do all this through him who gives me strength. You see, our contentment, our contentment is in Jesus Christ. This is why godliness with contentment equals great spiritual gain. We can't avoid verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. We all know the verse. I hear people repeat it often, at least a resemblance of it. It's not money is the root of evil. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And it stands between us and our relationship with Jesus. Notice that, notice that it is the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. 
And the root is something that is invisible. It penetrates deeply. It grows where it isn't seen. It can be the devil's tentacles that creates discontent and subtly creates an addiction or lust for that which brings grief. Our contentment, our contentment is in Christ who has dealt with the lust and appeal that creates covetousness. He suffered for our grief on the cross. He has taken on himself our weakness and desires and has defeated them on the cross. Do you believe this? Do you? I trust you too. Through faith in Christ, we have gained the greatest gift, which is surely found in contentment and godliness. I believe is the Christian life and contentment of great gain. Look, what are you living for? Now, I, I'm not taking time this evening to refer to verses 17 to 19. You can, you can read them. They ask us who are rich in so much. What or who do we live for? Love of money is symptomatic of a life driven by what we have, what we can get. All that is this worldly, of this world. There's no eschatological value. It has no bigger story. Nothing left. For it all goes back in the box. For the Christian, our vision is beyond the new, beyond to the new creation, the hope of eternal life. The life of discipleship in knowing Jesus is the life of godliness with contentment. A life rich in good deeds and generosity. A life faithful to God's word. I do allude to verse 19, where we read, In this way, they, those who are rich, will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Isn't this worth our investment? Covetousness creates false gain. But godliness with contentment indeed is great gain. Our faith in Jesus Christ is the great gain. He blesses us with the contentment that one day we will be in his presence. We don't have to worry about all that stuff in the presence of the living Savior. Let us pray. Our gracious Lord, oh, how blessed we are. And we thank you for the scriptures 
for their teaching in righteousness, for their laying down of the path we are to walk in, in our calling of discipleship. We pray for consistent applying of your word in our lives and in the church. Correct and rebuke your church when truth is distorted or the gospel is weakened. And grant your people the gift of the Holy Spirit that inspires truthfulness, obedience, and faithfulness. And may we live lives that are blessed with that contentment. Yes, there can be conflicts and challenges. There can be pain and sadness. We can be troubled by temptation and selfishness. But we praise you, O Lord, for the hope we have that is an eternal gain. We thank you for a, a deep inner contentment we can't fully explain. That faith in Christ assures us of the abundant life Christ offers, the everlasting life that is the true treasure of the soul. O oh Lord, we need not be longing for the things that are transient when we have Jesus, the life that is ever sure. In his name we pray. Amen.